Why did you stop me from killing her? Tell me while you're still alive. No, I was born with black skin. You were born with a black skin? Yes. Interesting. Someone must know something. I wish to learn. Read a book. I would rather have a good conversation. Typical. Selfish. You think like a human. <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation in English. Welcome to Japanese History Hidden in Our Screens. My name is John and I'm a public historian. This is the show where I put a podcaster through their paces as they discover Japanese history through the lens of popular media and film. Our guest this week is Ashton Zala, founder of the Black Anime Podcast Network and host of the Giant Shooty Robots podcast. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. So Ashton, could you tell the audience a bit about yourself and a bit about your background? I run Black Anime Podcast, which is the premier destination for anime and manga podcasts by black creators. There's over 200 in the directory now. And then the second part of what I do is I present Giant Shooty Robots with my co-host who lives in America. And that is a podcast about the Gundam franchise, uh, super robots and everything in between what piece of tv or film did you watch this week for the show so we watched or i watched uh Yesuke, which is a six episode ona on netflix and animated by mappa um directed by lashawn thomas and that is about a samurai um of african origin in sengoku era japan uh, Yasuke is based on a historical character, but the if for people who have seen the TV show, it has slightly too many, uh, let's just say, magic and robots to be totally historically accurate. <laughs> yeah, those anachronisms are something. They really, really, really are something. So when I first watched Yasuke, upon my initial viewing, I actually really disliked it. I was not a fan of it, but upon rewatching it, um, my fondness for it grew somewhat. I thought it was pretty on the bad end of mediocre last time, but this time I just think it's just a good um, anime. It's visually stunning. Um, that goes without saying. The music is also um, wonderful. It really sets the scene. As for the historical um, anachronisms, you see me, I'm a stickler for giant robots. I love giant robots. I'm a sucker for giant shooty robots. So I, while I frown upon them, I don't mind them too much. As for the magic, yeah, that's a bit much. So the historians who will be joining us on the podcast today, uh, they are the wonderful Dr. E. Taylor Atkins, who is a teaching professor of history at Northern Illinois University. He is an expert in modern Japanese and Korean cultural history, ethnomusicology, and jazz studies. His published works also include A History of Popular Culture in Japan from the 17th Century to the Present, which has a second edition coming out this autumn, uh, which I really recommend. It's a wonderful read. As well as him, we have Thomas Lockley, who is an associate professor at Nihon University College of Law in Tokyo. He is primarily known for his work on Yasuke, the Black Samurai. The English language version of his book, African Samurai, was co-authored with the novelist Geoffrey Girard in 2019. And so on top of all that, we are going to break down Yasuke today. Today, Ashton, we are going to break down Yasuke into three different themes. We are going to look at Yasuke himself, the man, the myth, the legend. We are going to look at his master, Odo Nobunaga. And also, we are going to look at the history of queer relationships in Japan. Okay, sounds dope. 
time period sound effects. So it's the you have mentioned, Ashton, that it is the Sengoku period. The time, the Sengoku period, means the time of the country at war. Uh, everyone is in civil war with each other due to a failure of the central government for roughly about 100, 150 years until it is unified. To put the history in context with the rest of the world, Ivan the Terrible is crowned the first Tsar of Russia. The Tudors are on the throne in England, alongside their new Church of England. Suleiman the Magnificent is ruler of the Ottoman Empire. The last Inca leader is killed by Spanish conquistadors. And our current calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is introduced for the first time. Section 1. Who was Yasuke? Ashton, the main thing to understand is that Yasuke as a historical figure is that our sources for him are very, very slim. How do you think we even know anything about someone from 400 years ago? Primarily via written texts, um, pictures that may have been painted. Exactly. That we know of, Yasuke didn't write down anything himself, and he disappears from our records at certain points. So everything we have is secondhand. And throughout so much of our stuff today, there will be a link of probably, perhaps... For Lockley's book, which is a biography of Yasuke, it's co-authored alongside the novelist Geoffrey Girard. And it's a very entertaining read. It's a very good book. But again, the entire biography is filled with probably maybes. Here's Thomas Lockley talking about how he came to his conclusions. His story is just such a, an amazingly fascinating story. I mean, you couldn't make it up. You quite literally couldn't make it up. I just sat around for four lifetimes trying to make this story up. Uh, but actually his life was uh, far, far more interesting than most fiction it will ever come out of. It's, it's got cross-cultural endeavour of Nobunaga and Yasuke. Whatever did eventually happen, that was what is in the book. Is my take many years to get my conclusion, but it's my informed conclusion. Um, people do disagree with it some, on some points. There's hardly any academic analysis of Yasuke's life. He is a great figure for historical fiction because it allows you to do so much. It is quite interesting, um, the liberties that LaShawn Thomas took in the series. I mean, there are several different ways he could have done. Like, he could have written something that was a great epic piece of historical fiction, but kept it within the realms of reality, like grounded in reality, grounded in a, a technology of the time but he went in a completely different route. Um, and I do think that the series is poorer for it, personally. And so the TV series, they give him a name. They look at his origin. So his the name in the TV series is Eusebio Ibrahim Baloy, and he is presented as being of Yao descent. For example, his name is Yasuke. Yasuke. I know it, would have, it would have made sense. It was one of the possibilities. Uh, the Yao people themselves were... Uh, long-distance travellers, uh, they were slavers, uh, they would have been involved with um, trade with the coast, Portuguese trade from the interior. One of the issues we had, or I had, sorry, was the fact that there was very little slaving at the time by, the, by Mozambique. It was, it was literally in its infancy, he would have had to have been one of the first very few slaves to have been uh, actually um, ripped out of his home there. However, Lockley does not conclude the Yao. He concludes rather that 
Yasuke is a member of the Dinka people, or the Jan. Based on the fact that Yasuke is written about in one source as having skin the colour of black ink. Here is Lockley talking about his conclusion. Any skin which could match up with the people of Southern Africa is black, the colour of black ink, to be specific. And that is very much closer to the, the peoples of the North, in particular, Thinka, Nuer, uh, Southern Sudan areas, uh, perhaps Western Ethiopia. Furthermore, the height of Yaske is extreme for that time. And the Dinka are the tallest people on average in the world. Um, so from those, I guess, you could call it light anthropology, conclusions came the conclusion of the D Dinka. And the last one there was that slavery involving North East Africa has a very, very long history. But specifically his height is mentioned as being almost six foot two or 188 centimetres tall. This is huge even for Japan today, where the average Japanese man is roughly five foot six, five foot seven. However, there is an element of the Jiang as an origin for Yasuke doesn't work, and that is that they have a tradition of tattooing and scarring their faces, which isn't mentioned in any of the sources we have about Yasuke either. However, Lockley circumvents this by arguing that Yasuke may have been taken as a slave when he was a child, so he then wouldn't have had any of this scarring. Yeah, that makes sense. It also makes sense that when Yasuke first arrives, primarily his first tongue or his mother tongue is Portuguese. It seems to be anyway. So him being taken as a child possibly um, checks checks the list. Probably, probably. Him speaking Portuguese at the time definitely would have made sense. He arrives in Japan in 1579, serving under a man called Alessandro Valignano, who is the, the visitor of mission to the Indies, which at that time means East Africa, South and Southeast Asia, working for something called the Jesuit Society. Uh, do you have any idea what the Jesuits are, or have you heard that word before? I have heard that word before. Um, I... I'm guessing they're a order of Christian missionaries. Is that correct? It's pretty much correct. They are they are a group basically spent with proselytizing and they right. spread out mostly related to the Portuguese empire. And Yasuke is mentioned as appearing with Valignano by the other Jesuits who are around him. However, Yasuke is never mentioned in Valignano's own writing. There's also another interesting element that Lockley told me, which is not included in the book because he found out it afterwards. We'll hear about it now. After the book was published, uh, a scholar here in Tokyo, Tokyo University called Nihokuoka, um, found a letter in Mozambique from Valiano describing the sale of 200 slaves and the fact that he's used those profits to donate to... Um, I think it was a nunnery in Lisbon, and he kept one slave for himself. Uh, but there's no indication to say that that is definitely a scale. So there's also a debate whether Yasuke was a slave or not. What do you think? Transatlantic slave trade would have been um, like very, very, very present and um, around in that period of time. And also, obviously, the television series does present him as a slave. And 
present him coming into um, Nobunaga Oda's ownership, um, having been purchased by him. This is something a little different to the transatlantic slave trade. This is something called the Nanban trade, uh, which literally means southern barbarian trade in Japanese. Right. It, it included most famously guns, silk, but also much less famously slaves or enslaved peoples. Most specifically, the Japanese would sell prisoners of war to them. Uh, the Jesuits also profited, as you heard from that clip, hugely from it, even though the, the king of Portugal at the time told them to stop. It's hard to enforce anti-slavery stuff halfway around the world. And so these basically a lot of this Catholic proselytizing uh, was funded through via the slave trade. Specifically, also, there's a point in it in which the Japanese basically say, let's not enslave any more Japanese people and sell them to the Portuguese. And everyone's like, cool. Gotcha, uh, however, gotcha. when they invade Korea, they go, well, we're allowed to we're allowed to sell Korean people to them, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And many of them end up in the Portuguese colonies, say, in Goa and India or in East Africa as well. But you mentioned there is a scene in the TV show where Yasuke is found by Nobunaga in a port. However, this is totally different to what would have happened at the time, because Valignano goes to Kyoto, the then capital of Japan, to have a meeting with the then supreme power in Japan, Oda Nobunaga. And this is in 1581. So Yasuke spends two years in Japan before he meets his eventual master. Uh, and this is all written about by a Portuguese missionary called Louis Foy. This includes the story that is depicted in the TV show where Nobunaga uh, demands for Yasuke to be scrubbed to prove his skin has not been inked. How long would you say, from watching that anime, how, much, how long do you think Yasuke ends up serving with Nobunaga? Um, I would say it's a good few years, possibly. Um, maybe about when I'm trying to think of when Nobunaga um died when the Hinoji incident was. Here is Thomas Lockley talking about the dates. Well, there's no maybe about it. It was from uh, it was from March 1581 until the day of Nobunaga's death. You know, we know exactly when that is. Uh, June 21st. Um, 1582 so there you have it what's that 15 months 16 months it's such a short time yet the tv show doesn't really focus that much on that it focuses on a possible future now the honorji incident in the tv show how how would you say it's depicted mostly depicted as the a massive advancing armies so it's um mitsuhide's army um he advances on nobunaga's stronghold and the house burns down. Um, Nobunaga and Yasuke are together. Nobunaga believes that there is no hope left. He goes to commit seppuku. So he the ritual disemboweling of oneself when one um, loses a war. And then he asks Yasuke to behead him. And Yasuke has flashbacks uh, subsequent to this. Um, and nightmares about it for years on end. Years on end. This is actually Honoji incident. Honoji is the name of an ex-temple. What happens inside, we obviously do not know. However, traditional stories have Oda Nobunaga's second not being Yasuke, but rather being his young lover, Modi Zanmaru, who is presented in the TV show 
order us. Is he safe? And Yasuke goes, yes, he is. He has gone away. Lockley's book depicts Yasuke as them being Ranmaru's second, which is, hmm. But the only survivor is true is Yasuke, because that we know of, uh, because he then goes to serve Nobunaga's son, Nobutada, who is also killed on that night. And after that, we don't know what happens. That is literally, he is captured, and then uh, Yasuke is presented to Akechi, and the warlord allegedly said that the black man was an animal, as well as not Japanese, and should thus not be killed, but taken to the Christian church in Kyoto. I mean, describing him as an animal is... I mean, it's to be expected of that period. I mean, Japan still is like deeply, deeply anti-black to this day. Um, so in that time period, some 500 years ago, there's not much I can say without cursing, really. And I really want to um, remain dignified in my response. But here is how Lockley talks about Mitsuhide's comment. At the time, that would have been just seen as a, a, a convenient excuse. If he didn't want to kill Yasuke because he wanted the Jesuits on his side, he had to have a reason not to kill that one man when he's killing everybody else. And the, the words uh, quoted by um, Freud, the Jesuit, the way Japanese people talk, often do talk, they've just been a convenient way of giving a justification. He murdered a very large part of the Kyoto population. Some people say up to 10,000 people. Uh, he had to have a pretty good reason to not, not be uh, uh, killing this one particular man. And the real reason is he really needed Takayama Ukon and the other Jesuit influenced daimyos on his side. The element of racism from Mitsuhide is actually relatively unusual for the time. Here is E. Taylor Atkins talking about the lack of meaning related to skin color at that time in Japan. There were Africans that were with the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, until they were all evicted in 1639. And after that, there were still Africans at Deshima when the Dutch were there. Uh, they used the, the term that's, now I won't say it, but the term that's used pejoratively for the N-word in Japan right now, they used it in the Edo period, but it didn't have any particular pejorative meaning. And it also described South and Southeast Asians. So, you know, it wasn't exclusively Africans. And then this other term, Tolgin, which literally means Tang Chinese person, was used for Europeans, Southeast Asians, Chinese, Koreans, and Africans. So, you know, skin color, they noticed it, but they didn't attribute any meaning to it. And when they did, it was something that they got from the Dutch themselves. Basically, racism as we know it for the Japanese is what you're trying to say to me. It didn't exist at that time, which is quite, intre- which is quite interesting. Or if it did exist, it was more born out of ignorance sheer ignorance as opposed to any kind of malicious white supremacy or anti-blackness so um i i mean i i do understand that um i i definitely definitely understand that you can't transpose um modern um racism onto that historic time period i do i do get that and obviously the tv show is is using this to talk about much more modern problems with racism i i did notice LeSean thomas making a concerted effort to talk about that and that he may have possibly 
used Yasuke as like an author placeholder character and used the racism um, within the TV show, within the context of the TV show, um, as an allegory for the racism he has himself faced in modern day Japan. I will just quickly say the reason that Yasuke comes to start being remembered in Japan is due to a children's book called Kudosuke uh, from 1968 by Kudusu Yoshio and illustrated by Mita Genjiro. Uh, I'm afraid the images look a bit unfortunate today. So they draw him as a kind of um, stereotypical Sambo figure almost. Um, which is not great. It's a book aimed at children, and it's it's mostly used as a book to like reflect upon that time because this is a time in the nineteen sixties. It's post colonial Africa. There's supposed to be a lot of hope. Basically, the idea of these new independent African nations have just broken free of like colonialism. So the idea is that from it, it's just teaching children the difference between Japan and Africa through this like through this figure who is not presented as far as i know in a hugely like critical or negative light he's just presented as a foreigner i mean the illustrations aren't great though to be perfectly honest they really aren't um i mean and i don't want to take it away from yesuke but it has been a common thread um throughout um japanese animation of the 80s 90s it got better in the early 2000s of black people being depicted in this highly um anti-black and white supremacist way that kind of like um originates from like minstrel shows and minstrelsy so um yeah it's not great it's really not great it doesn't get better next because the other very popular book from that period which comes from the 1970s is by endo shusaku who is a very popular author of that time um i'm not going to say the name of the book because again it is the japanese equivalent of the n-word is the title of the book. This book is a retelling of Yasuke's narrative. However, the titular character, who is renamed Sumpa, is reduced to a cowardly infantile buffoon. Which is not great because... No, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. It is absolutely awful. (laughs) Uh, However, now Yasuke has become a popular focus for video games and media in the West. And here is Taylor Atkins talking about why Yasuke might be so popular. You know, there was going to be a movie made with Chadwick Boseman as Yasuke. And and I understand where it comes from, but there's a lot of wishful thinking about what Yasuke was and what he represented and that sort of thing. Um, people are, you know, really going beyond what we what we do know what or what's documented about Yasuke which is fine if they want to do that present it as it is you know this is a wishful fa- fantasy we want we like the idea that the first non-japanese samurai was an african rather than will adams because we like samurai and we want to be progressive with uh, our representations so it just seems like the fascination with yasuke this is the perfect moment for it to happen but we just don't know that much about it i would agree a lot of it is there is a huge fascination um sometimes problematic fascination with um japanese popular culture and east asian media in the west and a lot of it is um i i mean for me personally as a black anime fan i when i first found out about yesuke i thought that was kind of awesome um a lot of it is wish fulfillment and us 
living vicariously through this black figure um, in Japan who actually was actually a samurai. Um, I feel that's why um, Yasuke and his legend um, have risen to the forefront of popular culture enough to the point where Netflix greenlit a series about his life um, and gave it obviously a, quite a substantial budget because the animation is like undoubtedly without a doubt stunning so yeah section two who was order nobunaga from watching the tv show what like what is your impression of nobunaga i mean within this television series nobunaga is painted as uh i'd say he was fascinated with yasuke um, somewhat of a benevolent master um, in the flashbacks, but ultimately um, a cowardly drunk almost, especially in the Honorji incident um, situation when he did commit suicide because he was inebriated. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Nobunaga, it, he is a unique character and he has a unique personal force and a mind for tactics that led him to be the almost undisputed leader of Japan before his assassination in 1582. There is so much about him. He is viewed as one, a hater of tradition with almost a, a nihilistic attitude towards the past. And that's certainly how he's portrayed in the TV show. He doesn't give a damn for tradition. However, Nobunaga, through his actions, is much more of a political opportunist that uses the circumstances to his advantage, uh, one of which is dominated by conflict with the power of Buddhist religious institutions uh, that gives him this image, especially in our Western sources, as an almost secular saviour. And now I'm going to give you a very limited biography of him, going very fast. He is born in Nagoya, in modern-day Aichi Prefecture, which was then called Owari Province. This is 1534 CE, and he is heir to the Oda clan. He becomes leader after his father's early death. Nobunaga was in his late teens, and he was known throughout his youth for his strange behaviour. Uh, he even had a nickname, the Fool of Owari, or the Great Fool. He comes to his father's funeral in casual clothing with a huge sword and just throws incense on the altar and leaves. So this is where a lot of like the image of him as this kind of drunken mess almost comes from. There's then a lot of infighting and due to his tactics, he eventually unifies Awari. Uh, one of those tactics is he has a great interest in firearms. He uses them heavily on the battlefield and he's one of the first Japanese warlords to do this. He continues to grow in strength until he is attacked by the government in Kyoto because they hate him so much. He keeps on winning. One of the main forces that was not on his side uh, were not samurai, but local people. These are a group called the Iko-Iki, who are a loose movement of an alliance of semi-independent towns and some Buddhist monasteries. Uh, they had no love lost for the samurai. These are not your average monks, though. These are warrior monks, known as Sohei. But in 1571, Nobunaga orders a huge monastery called Enrakuji to be attacked and burned to the ground for aiding his enemy, as well as massacring every single person there, from soldiers to children. Sources of the time estimate his killing of over 3,000 people. This attack is not unique to Nobunaga, but it was certainly viewed as sacrilegious and horrific by many. If there is one thing that I have heard about Nobunaga, 
in my brief reading of him is that he was a man that um was equally brutal as he was ambitious he was bloodthirsty and ambitious in equal measure that is one thing that, that definitely definitely typifies um Oda Nobunaga and you are correct but i think the main thing is these elements solo so being bloodthirsty being ambitious they are not unique to only Nobunaga at that point but all of them together however really tip the scale so one of the biggest stories which is partially depicted in the tv show uh is the taking of heads of enemies which is done this is very traditional in Japanese warfare to prove that you've killed someone you cut off his head it's painted to make to look nice and then presented to your lord however in 1573 it is popularly depicted and also accepted that he took these heads of three of his enemies, uh, lacquered them with gold dust, and presented them to an audience. And then, depending on who you read, uh, he made them into sake cups uh, for his personal guard to drink from to proclaim they would never betray him. Which is a scene actually in the TV show, but they use the skulls rather than the heads. Yes, and that is quite, that, that's rather unique. That's a rather unique way to proclaim victory. Let's just put it that way. He also liked to spread rumours about himself. He signed one thing, like the demon daimyo, the demon lord. So he loves his own myth-making. This is also nine years before he meets Yasuke that this happens. So, But there is one man who would betray him, and that is Akechi Mitsuhide. By 1582, Nobunaga is widely considered the most powerful man in Japan. With a power base around Kyoto, he's preparing for the invasion of Shikoku, which is one of the bigger Japanese islands, and then Akechi betrays him. We don't know the reason, but he doesn't get to become the dark general of Yasuke. Here is Thomas Lockley on his idea behind why Mitsuhide betrayed him. You know, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about the way he'd been treated in previous weeks when uh, Nobunaga had asked him to look after Tokugayasu for a meal. And he'd thrown it all in a pond uh, in disgust, even though it, it was fine food. And then there's a the thing about his mother's death being caused. I suspect it was just a drip, 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 and then an explosion. But one thing I've come to think since the book was published is I think his soldiers didn't know. I think his soldiers were just told the enemy is at the Honoji and they just went and killed whoever was in the front. They didn't know who it was. And they wouldn't, in, this is a day without media, really, not the same kind of media we know. They would never have met this close entourage of Nobunaga. They wouldn't have known what their faces looked like. They wouldn't have had any real clue what was going on in the heat of battle anyway, when people are throwing weapons around. You know, it's too late by then. Anyway, we don't know. We never will. But uh, that's one of the beauties of the mysteries of history. You can debate them forever. <laughs> it would naturally follow that even though the reason isn't known and is lost to history, that somebody like Nobunaga would naturally have people plotting against him. Again, Nobunaga was somebody, from all of the accounts that we've read of him, um, from history was definitely somebody that maltreatment of his men that weren't acting in a way he expected or weren't achieving goals that he set out for them would would typify his character uh nobunaga and his heir nobutada are killed on the same night so 
who is then the leader? Well, uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi comes back from a conflict in the West and basically defeats Akechi in a set of battles. Uh, so Akechi also dies in 1582. And Toyotomi and Tokugawa Yasu, who would end up being the next two rulers of Japan, are not even mentioned in the TV show. And I'm a little bit miffed about that, but that's just me. One of the key figures who dies with Oda Nobunaga at the Honoji incident is Mori Danmaru. And it is very likely that they had a relationship, and we are going to talk about it in the next section. Section 3. Medieval Queer Relationships in Japan. It is now time for Queer History and look at samurai queer relationships because there was definitely more than one. Also note for everyone, I will generally be using the term queer because that is what is widely accepted academic umbrella term for what we would view now as people who identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. The main problem in an academic history sense is it's impossible to travel back in time to allow these individuals to self-identify. This is also a problem because of cultural standards, because as we get into this section, what is considered a queer relationship now is very much informed by Judeo-Christian Islamic views on same-sex relationships. Yeah, Abrahamic religion and Western colonialism has a lot to do uh, with how the world um, currently views and the lens through which the world currently views LGBTQ plus relationships. Exactly. And when I told you, Ashton, that we're going to be talking about queer relationships in medieval Japan, what were your first thoughts about it? Um, First of all, that's an incredibly niche topic. Uh, Second of all, that I shouldn't really have an opinion because I'm a straight black man. So there's that. I am a straight white man. I will get this out of the way here. But also... This is a history that is really important to me, and it is not depicted in a lot of media, like, at all. And Yasuke was one of the only times I've seen this even acknowledged as something that happened. And I have a real problem with how they do it, because if this is someone's only, like, interaction with queer relationships in medieval Japan, I, I, it, it is about as wrong as you can get. So in the TV show, Oda Nobunaga is highly implied to be in a relationship with Mori Danmaru. Do you remember the character? He's not a huge character within the story. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, just as I remember him um, within the show. Um, He wasn't a major character. Um, Obviously, this is the story of Yasuke and not uh, Oda Nobunaga. But he was kind of like just in the background almost. Um, he's so he is yeah depicted as um problematically effeminate and so on and so forth. When this may not have necessarily been the case, he is almost grouped with Yasuke by Akechi Mitsuhide as being one of the reasons he's angry at Oda for like besmirching samurai traditions. He lays with a man and is also friendly to black people. What is going on? Um, that's cow excrement. It's really annoying cow excrement. As we said in Oda's section, he had a complicated relationship with loads of traditional institutions, specifically the Buddhist clergy, and he was radical in some terms, like battlefield tactics, using guns. However, his very likely queer relationship or relationships is arguably one of the ways in which he was most traditional. So now it's time to get into the world of something called Nanshoku is the most popular term for it. It translates to literally male colours. In other terms is wakashudo or shudo, which translates 
to the way of young boys. Yeah, that's uh, the the young bit is a bit like. Mm. So here is E. Taylor Atkins telling us what Shudo is. Shudo usually refers to same-sex relations, but to but between grown-ass men and younger boys. Today we would call it child uh, exploitation, child abuse, pederasty, what what have you. And it was a replica replication of the you know lord and vassal feudal relationship and that sort of thing so ashton i'm also this is going to be specifically talking about relationships between men earliest references to queer relationships is found in the heian period so going back to the 11th century you might have heard something called the tale of genji or the genji monogatari this for those who don't know is a novel it is widely considered one of the first novels ever to existed uh, written by a woman murasaki shikibu uh, the hero, at one point, who is pursuing a woman who spurns his advances, accepts that refutation, goes, okay. And he sleeps with her brother instead. Practically also within Japanese religions of Shinto and Buddhism, they don't have any major theological issues with same-sex relationships. So the origin of Shudo is traced back to Buddhist monasteries, where older monks would have sexual relationships with young acolytes. Most of our written sources about this are specifically from the Edo period, aka the 17th to 19th centuries. However, Nobunaga only dies 20 years before it starts, and many traditional books that we have now, like associated with the samurai, that have references to male-on-male relationships, it's simply ridiculous to claim they don't exist or that Nobunaga wouldn't have had them. The main text details includes The Great Mirror of Male Love from 1687 by Ihara Saikaku. Yasuke kind of, I wouldn't say that it pretends that it doesn't exist, but it doesn't acknowledge it to an extent which it could have been acknowledged. And that's why it's kind of problematic. It kind of sweeps under the carpet almost. We just have the one effeminate presenting character and then that's kind of just it almost. And the thing is, it is problematic because these relationships had very specific structures and there are historical arguments on how it affects the individual because as the way of young boys implies, this is mostly pederasty, aka sexual relationships between older men and young teenage boys. Which is also quite, well, problematic by our standards. Oh, by our standards, it was be heavily illegal. So in the TV show, uh, Mori Ramaru is depicted as like, he's a grown, he's a grown man. Exactly. He is presented as an adult in the TV show, whereas in reality, he may not have been. No, he was 16 to 17 at the time of his death. Yeah. Yeah. The terms that are used here are specifically chigo, which is like a page or young attendant. They're sometimes also called a wakashu. Uh, This is related to their hairstyle before their coming of age ceremony. Uh, And then the other, which is Oda Nobunaga in this point, is called a ninja, which is an older man who loves wakashu the younger party is of course idealized as this like bishonin this beautiful youth uh but beauty that can only be expressed by a young man and not a woman now when the younger partner comes of age the sexual relationship is supposed to end but the tutorship the loyalty the brotherhood is supposed to then last a lifetime uh with the now older parties uh now probably both engaging in relationship with young boys. And also these relationships are what we would now call bisexual. The majority of these men would have wives and children as well. There are some slightly like, for example, we talked about Nobunaga. He had multiple, multiple children. 
he had a lot of children. There are some slightly more unusual individuals who are described as women haters because they exclusively make love to men. Also, our views of the time of men having relationship with boys is not totally exclusive to now. At the time, there are also arguments of how consensual this was. And here is Atkins talking about what he found there. At the time, was it abuse? And, you know, I, I quote at length that excerpt from a story where somebody describes um, the, you know, the younger party in those relationships. And, you know, basically as somebody being tormented, being physically damaged, psychologically damaged by it. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything that said anything other than, uh, you know, these, these relationships are normal and they're mutual and they're okay. So we know now from that text, if nothing else, that some, at least some people thought of it like we do today as child abuse, but obviously it was very prominent, very pronounced. It wasn't hidden. It was out in the open. All the great warlords you can think of today had boy lovers. Japan has also changed over time. Japan only outlaws homosexuality in the 1870s. Current Japanese society is also extremely homophobic. So it is incredibly difficult for Japanese media to even acknowledge or look at this history because it is also extremely problematic. And we will leave this section with Atkins' views on warlords of this time. So, but in other words, you know, it's difficult to take, to, to, to focus on same-sex love between Oda Nobunaga and another man because usually those were, those were boys. Except now, Ashton, it's quiz time. Oh boy. Wait, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. It's quiz time. But, okay, let's go. Number one, with what Christian order did Yasuke come to Japan serving? The Jesuits. Number two, what are two possible places or peoples that Yasuke could have originated from? The Yao people and the Dinka? What was the name of the lord that Yasuke came into service under after the Jesuits? Oda Nobunaga. How tall was Yasuke? Six foot two. Nobunaga was well known for loving and using what kind of weapon? Ozutsu, so guns. The Tanashigama is, is the matchlock. And Ozutsu is a separate type of gun. I think it's like a cannon more like? More like a shotgun almost? Number six. Nobunaga is rumoured to have made what out of the skulls of his enemies? So drinking receptacles, so cups. Seven. Who betrayed Oda Nobunaga and led to his death? and Yasuke's disappearance from history. Akechi Mitsuhide. Number eight. What is the academic term for what we would now call gay or LGBTQ plus relationships in the past? Uh, queer. Number nine. Name one of the terms in English or Japanese for the samurai same-sex relationship. This is one of the most difficult ones. I cannot remember. <laughs> shudo, wakashudo, or nanshoku. Nanshoku means male colours. Uh, Wakashudo means the way of young boys. Uh, and let's move on quickly to question 10. What famous 11th century novel widely considered the first traditional novel contains queer relationships? The Tale of the Genji. So that is 9 out of 10, Ashton. Well done. Yeah, that's not too bad. It would have been, 10 out of 10 would have been good. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty good. So Ashton, what do you feel after going through this? How do you feel? Do you feel you've learned more about Yasuke? I feel like I've learned more about the historic period in which he lived. Not so much 
him as a person because his origins are still murky at best. So, Ashton, where can we find you if we want to listen to more of you? This is a long list. So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at Ash Beard Guy. You can find my main project, Black Anime Podcasts, on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at Black Anime Pods. And that's the premier destination for anime and manga podcasts by black creators. And it's also a podcast discovery tool for the mod of Black Ataku. And then you can also find my podcast, Giant Shooty Robots, on Twitter, at Giant Shooty Robo. I'm hampered by the character count for usernames. And on Instagram and TikTok, at Giant Shooty Robots. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. We are, of course, Japanese history hidden in our screens on most things. You can find all links to all those things in the description below. Uh, we also have our website, which is www japanhiddenhistorypodcast.com in which we have articles and supporting material as well as an about section for everyone who's been involved in this podcast. All that's left to say is make sure you tune in next week as we break down the classic that is Mononoke Hime or Princess Mononoke. <laughs> <laughs>